Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward 2022 podcast series. My name's James Luckhurst and this week we'll be joined by the World Health Organization's Regional Programme Manager for Road Safety, Violence and Injury Prevention, Jonathan Parsmore. He'll be talking to us about the initial steps his unit's taking to develop a technical manual on effective and innovative road policing. Jonathan has been very encouraging and helpful towards Project Edward in recent years and has been generous with his advice on what we need to do and what we should avoid doing if we want to see Project Edward grow and flourish in the long term. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to him. We'll also be hearing from Mark Turner, who runs the Road Victims Trust. We sent Cheryl Pinner to meet him recently and to talk about the work he does and why care of victims and bereaved families is so important. And finally, this week, we'll be meeting three members of the Project Edward team who missed out on our little conflab a couple of weeks ago. So be prepared to hear from our comms supremo, Becky Hadley, our Midlands road trip leader, Ian Temperton, and his northern colleague, Stuart Lovett. But all that will come a little later. First, let's consider the World Health Organization plans for a manual that will support all aspects of operational roads policing, including the implementation of road safety legislation, penalties and incapacitation, deterrent strategies and recidivism. It follows successful manuals from the WHO, which cover helmet use, speed management, seat belts and child restraints, data systems and pedestrian safety. Here to tell us more is Jonathan Passmore of the WHO's European Regional Office. Jonathan, before we start, just give us an idea of, in particular, the area that you're responsible for. I'm the regional advisor for uh, for Europe. Europe uh, is, uh, for us at least, is uh, far more than just the European Union. We actually cover 53 countries uh, across uh, the Northern Hemisphere. So basically uh, from, uh, from Ireland uh, all the way to, to Siberia is, uh, uh, is uh, within uh, my, uh, my region uh, of, of engagement. So uh, that's covering all of the European Union. It's covering all of uh, the former Yugoslavia, so the, uh, the Western Balkans and uh, uh, and uh, and importantly, all of the countries of the former Soviet Union, with a huge variation in uh, road safety uh, road safety issues. Overall, as a region, it's uh, it's still very important to note that uh, the European region has the lowest mortality rate uh, of uh, any WHO region. Give us some background then on the need for the document that you're looking at. We are designated, mandated by the United Nations General Assembly to coordinate. Uh, road safety uh, within the UN system. Um, And uh, as part of that role, for those with very long memories, you might uh, recall back to 2004 when WHO released the World Report on road traffic uh, injury prevention. And since 2004, uh, we've been working on an ongoing series of publications that supplemented the World Report, and that's uh, our Good Practice Manuals, which uh, many colleagues will also know as the Green Manuals series. So through that uh, series of publications, we've uh, developed um, uh, publications on drink driving, on speed management, 
uh, on data systems, on helmets, on uh, restraints, on cycling, pedestrian safety, a whole range of different uh, topics. But uh, throughout that time, we've never had a specific publication addressing the uh, the issue of uh, of road policing and, uh, and and enforcement. And certainly, the consensus, the uh, the feedback that we've been getting from more and more countries is that this is uh, definitely long overdue. So uh, it's very uh, it's very pleasing that we've been able to uh, to to initiate this uh, this uh, process. And uh, so in the not too distant future, this uh, this new reference and resource will be uh, available. Maybe we can look at good and less good practice, um, starting with with where road policing is done well and what makes it effective. Do any examples spring to mind at the moment? So with the tra- with the transition of uh, you know going from traffic management to road policing, this uh, this includes a really wide and a growing scope of uh, responsibilities. And enforcement of road safety legislation is just one of these, but it is a most crucial aspect uh, in uh, creating deterrence and changing road user behaviours. And whilst uh, enforcement is an inextricable part of road safety legislation and the development of road safety legislation processes, in so many country contexts, there is really a disconnect here. And there's this, uh, often I see this mistaken belief that the mere presence of legislation will ensure uh, road user compliance rather than uh, legislation being something that requires constant implementation, constant monitoring and and, and vigilance for it it to be uh, uh, adhered to and therefore achieving its road safety potential. In case you can't tell from my my accent, I am uh, from Australia. And uh, I'm uh, I'm very proud of the processes and efforts that uh, my country has uh, has uh, implemented in recent years in uh, in road safety. In the case of the uh, Australian state of Victoria, for example, road policing is uh, established as a specialist uh, unit, and this recognises both the professionalism and the expertise that is required to to make our roads safe. Uh, the road policing unit it uh, oversees the the development and the implementation of the state road policing strategy, which is a complement to the uh, to the overall state road safety strategy. And this uh, policing strategy outlines everything that the police will do uh, within their expertise within their jurisdiction to contribute to achieving overall strategic road safety objectives of reducing deaths and serious injuries on our roads. One particular example, Victoria, the state of Victoria is very well known for their intensive roadside drink driving enforcement and uh, uh, colleagues uh, may be familiar with uh, with the booze bus, which is essentially a, a mechanism for very uh, intensive roadside random breath testing. And in a population of the state of about 5 million people, the police managed to undertake between four, uh, four and 5 million random breath tests uh, every year due to this, uh, due to this intensive uh, mechanism. And this in turn, uh, this, uh, this kind of uh, intensive enforcement that identifies and removes impaired drivers from the road has been extremely effective in reducing alcohol-related road deaths that between 2010 2014 reduced by 45%. That sounds perfect for replicability. Um, Has the Victoria model succeeded elsewhere that you're aware of? 
Um, I haven't. Well, certainly it's been it's been duplicated and and uh, further uh, implemented in other Australian states. Uh, so it's uh, it's very well uh, utilised in uh, in Western Australia, for example. I haven't seen the same sort of intensity of implementation of this kind of drink driving enforcement anywhere else. So uh, certainly agree with you about the opportunity for for replicability. I have seen examples from. Uh, uh, from France, for example, where they adopt something similar, where they where they'll adopt, for example, an entire road diversion to do uh, extremely intensive uh, drink drive enforcement on an entire highway uh, system. But because, of course, of that, uh, uh, you know, the logistics issues and the upheaval that such a that such a diversion occurs, it is a very infrequent strategy. Whereas the Victorian model is something that can. Uh, can be implemented on uh, on any um, or not on any I should say, but uh, on on many segments of the road network with minimal uh, with minimal um, impact uh, to the flow of uh, of traffic, for example. So, yes, a, a very good a very good example and a very uh, replicable example and a very uh, effective strategy in preventing uh, impaired driving. Let's move on and think about perhaps where things can be improved, where they need to be improved, um, in what areas of road policing and enforcement, where there will be scope for the most basic methods to improve the, the results and the outcomes. I mean, WHO, we estimate that uh, within the European region, um, uh, more than 68,000 people are killed on our, uh, on our regional roads uh, each year. And uh, that's I, I, I need to uh, to preface that by reminding you what I said earlier about the European region being the best performing uh, of all regions. And so even with that kind of uh, attrition that we're seeing on our roads, that in itself highlights that there is a huge need for improvement across all aspects of uh, safe system implementation for road safety, including road policing. You know, in, in terms of specific areas of improvement, one of the things that uh, that I do see very commonly in many countries around the region is a simple lack of intensity of enforcement that uh, that, that is really just, uh, just, just lacking there, that for a variety of reasons, including, for example, that police don't have the human or the financial or the technical resources to be able to in- intensively implement legislation. Then, uh, then that's legislation that uh, uh, that uh, basically just doesn't have the ability to achieve its road safety and its injury prevention uh, potential. But another issue that I see that uh, that does need uh, attention across all countries is what I what I suppose I would describe as the disempowerment of road police. Um, so often road police, you know, they've, they've been assigned an extremely important and, and a difficult duty, but they are being continually challenged, criticised by, by, by the public and, and in some instances even political sectors. I fully recognise that uh, penalty notices are publicly very unpopular, but, uh, but I don't think it can be argued that, uh, that they do remain a very crucial road safety strategy, and this contributes significantly to, uh, to changed road user behaviour, compliance with road safety legislation, changed road user behaviour, and that ultimately contributes to saving lives and preventing injuries on our roads. So definitely no apologies required for effective, strong enforcement. 
Absolutely, that's a very good way to put it. I, I do, you know, this part of this disempowerment is is exactly that. I do believe that we are that uh, police are constantly uh, being felt that they do need to apologise for doing the duty that they have been uh, tasked and assigned to do, and that is just uh, quite a quite a contradictory stance. Let's consider the manual and the issues it needs to address, which are of particular relevance in low and middle income countries. Can you give me some examples of what those specific issues are? Sure. I mean, low and middle income countries, they actually do experience many of the same issues in road policing that high income countries do. But what I think one of the biggest differences is, is that they do experience those issues with often without uh, the same degree of um, political public support, as well as human and financial resources. So they're essentially trying to address uh, similar issues, trying to achieve similar results. But uh, so often with uh, with a metaphoric one uh, one arm tied behind their back. Road police in, uh, in, in low and middle income countries, they may have been, been granted and tasked with very broad uh, responsibilities when it comes to implementing road safety law. But for example, they may not even have been consulted when it comes to uh, the text and the uh, scope of legislation when it was being developed. Uh, so, so uh, no, uh, you know, no consultation on whether a legislation is even enforceable. Uh, for example, I think road policing in so many countries is seen as the lowest priority when it comes to policing priorities, and so they are the the the, the last to be considered for the distribution of human and financial uh, resources. You know, and and part of that I think comes with the fact that there's there may be very little recognition that uh, road police are addressing an issue that has far more human impact uh, and consequences than really any other police priorities that uh, uh, that maybe exist, such as crime or terrorism, for example. When you think about just how many people uh, are dying uh, or seriously being seriously injured on uh, on the roads each year. Let's think of the law as it relates to road safety issues such as speed, seatbelts, helmet use and, and drink driving. To what extent is the law itself pretty much standard from country to country? Uh, and the problem lies not in the law, but in enforcement of it or lack of it. So under under WHO's mandate from the United Nations General Assembly, uh, one of the uh, activities that we implement uh, that uh, many colleagues will be familiar with is the Global Status Report on Road Safety. We use this process basically to monitor progress uh, across the globe in achieving road safety goals and targets. And at the moment, we're currently working on our fifth Global Status Report that will be released in uh, October next year. Um, in that survey, we monitor, amongst other things, the implementation of road safety legislation for behavioural risk factors, like you mentioned. So um, to that end, we have established standardised criteria uh, for what constitutes good practice in legislation. An example here will be for alcohol. And in our last status report that was published in 2018, of the 53 countries in the region, only 28 countries in the region had good practice uh, legislation for alcohol. And that is those criteria for alcohol is where legislation establishes a maximum blood alcohol concentration for the general population of drivers at 0.05 grams per deciliter and uh, for novice and probationary drivers at 0.02 grams 
per deciliter. So only 28 of the 53 countries had uh, such uh, legislation and, and, uh, and, and those specific sort of criteria in their statutes. When we look at all of the uh, all five behavioral risk factors across all across the region, there were only five countries uh, in the whole region that had comprehensive, had good practice legislation that met uh, met these uh, standardized criteria um, for uh, for all behavioral risk factors. So you're very much correct. Legislation, at least where uh, where we hope to end up, legislation is uh, you know well established. Um, um, there's, it, there's standard legis standardized legislation well established for behavioral risk factors. Through the status report, we, we identify and we engage with countries where these gaps exist um, and, uh, and apply advocacy to, uh, to revise. But uh, as you said right from the beginning, the, uh, the, the key challenge is so often the degree of implementation and the degree of enforcement that distinguishes the road safety outcomes across countries. We need to uh, start sort of pulling pulling this together, um, Jonathan. How will the manual be developed? The the manual is very much a consultative process, and we've already actually conducted completed, I should say, two stages of that uh, process. So we've already conducted a very comprehensive literature review, which has consolidated all of the evidence uh, on um, on effective road policing strategies for behavioural risk factors, and um, we've also. Uh, conducted a, a regional survey of road uh, policing practices to really identify what is currently being implemented by countries in the implementation of their legislation. So identifying what their approaches are, what their achievements have been, what sort of challenges and barriers that they uh, that they have in uh, in road policing uh, in different countries across the, the region. We're using the results of two preliminary steps to develop the text of the manual, and that's the call for uh, for, for, for proposals that we put out uh, recently. But uh, so what what these uh, what this survey will also do is it will help us identify uh, case studies. Uh, on uh, on experiences, on good practices, on uh, on specific procedural aspects of road policing, that we can uh, further highlight uh, for the information and benefit of other police jurisdictions. With the editorial group that we're in the process of forming, uh, we will be uh, pulling all of this uh, together into a a usable uh, technical manual. Let's conclude, Jonathan, with with a look at, in your opinion, what would success look like? Mm. Success really, uh, I think, will be uh, will be a product that is both well received by uh, our road um, policing counterparts across uh, across the region, and uh, and a product that we can further develop training materials around and instigate uh, support for uh, for building national capacity uh, for uh, road uh, road policing um, implementation and uh, and uh, and effective enforcement. Furthermore, success, I think, will also be uh, uh, will be uh, in building partnerships and building networks between policing agencies across the region and also uh, with the various uh, agencies and entities of the United Nations, where we can continue to stress the crucial role that road policing plays in a safe system uh, approach and uh, uh, and for uh, for uh, road safety results worldwide. Jonathan Passmore, thank you very much for joining us. We will look forward to um, hearing how the manual develops and, and uh, perhaps we can take a closer look at it once it's, it's published as a part of ongoing Project Edward initiatives. So thank you so much for sparing the time. 
Thanks, James, and uh, looking forward to hearing about the outcomes of the uh, week of action coming up very soon. That was Jonathan Passmore from the World Health Organization's European Regional Office. Time now to head for Bedford and to meet Mark Turner of the Road Victims Trust, an organisation providing support for families going through the devastation of bereavement following a fatal road collision. We asked Cheryl Pinner to have a conversation with Mark purely because of her own vast experience as a police family liaison officer and her in-depth understanding of the subject. Oh, good afternoon, Mark. It's really lovely to spend some time with you this afternoon. And um, I've just been reflecting back over some of the things that we've done together and how our worlds have met. So my history, as you're aware, is I'm a retired police officer. Family liaison was like the passion that I had within the police. And that was whether it was a, a, a family that I was dealing with following a disaster, which could be a natural disaster, a man-made disaster, through a murder manslaughter, but typically through fatal collisions. Um, and when I think about the world that you're now involved in through the Road Victims Trust and the difference that that makes to families and their sort of like future well-being, really, following that devastating knock on the door, um, I didn't know whether you wanted to sort of like tell me a little bit more about that world. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Cheryl. You know, it's a terrible fact, isn't it, that every single day in the United Kingdom, five people will be killed on the road. And that's just an amazing statistic, because if five people were getting killed on planes or trains, there'd be a national outcry. Yeah. But they're killed on the road and people don't really seem to bother that much. Now, we know from the Road Victims Trust, just across Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire, that 85 to 90 people are dying every single year. And that's leaving this massive uh, void for people, this huge trauma is caused. Now, thankfully now, I'm part of a charity that can provide face-to-face -face support for everybody that needs it, everybody who's affected. And I can tell you that makes an enormous difference, as you'd know from your world as a family liaison officer. Yeah, and I think it's so important that the victim's voice is gone. So it's actually now more so about the family's voice. And when you say, you know, five a day, that's horrific. And it's also avoidable. From my perspective, the work that you do within the Road Victims Trust is so powerful in starting the healing process for those families moving on. Now, one of the problems about road death is quite often is the word accident. People refer to them as accidents. There has been an accident. Well, I can tell you these aren't accidents because in 95% of the cases, these are human error. Yeah. So something is going badly wrong there, but there's this complacency around the word accident. These are collisions that are taking people's lives. There isn't support nationally available for those type of people. I'm, I'm happy to operate in beds, cams and hearts where there is support and we are able to provide that face-to-face -face, uh, service. And I know from the people that we deal with who've lost their sons, their daughters, their husbands, you name it, their lives are in absolute pieces. And the best that we can do is start to give them some tools to help them to start to cope again with moving forward. But sometimes their voices just simply aren't heard. You know, people are getting killed every day by people using a mobile phone when they're behind the wheel of a car. Now, driving is incredibly complex, as you know. Just because we do it every single day doesn't mean we're any good at it. In fact, if anything, we might be getting worse at it. Yet people think they can then add a mobile phone to that complex mix and get away with it. And look at the consequences. Absolutely horrendous. You know, we're talking about death. But actually, sometimes I think the life-changing injuries, if they survive the collision, they are catastrophic as well. 
And then again, it's the family's voice that needs to be heard, thinking about the changes to their life, looking after their loved one, the impact of all the medical interventions and things like that. So lots of times in the police, I can remember thinking I'm really good at questioning. But sometimes I used to think and reflecting back, was I so good at listening? And I think that's absolutely one of the skills that you at RVT can give, that you listen to their voices. And um, and I think that's quite unique in that you have the face to face, which I think is it's massive for somebody who needs your service. They don't want to do it over the telephone. They don't want to do it via Zoom. They actually want that personal intervention because it's about somebody they cared for, somebody they love. And I think, you know, what you offer is massive in the beginning of their process of healing. Yep. And we know that that early intervention, if someone has lost a loved one, that early intervention is absolutely crucial. Working in conjunction with the police, because every time there's a fatal or life-changing collision, the one authority that's going to be there will be police officers. And if you can form a relationship with the police officers who can share some of that workload, and then we can use our expertise to help the people have a voice and start to work to different things. There's a huge amount of great work going on out there. Yeah, there is. You know, Project Edward, look at Project Edward, what's that, what that is striving to achieve. Look at the road safety partnerships. Look at the Vision Zero. Look at the safer systems. The answer lies in technology and engineering, education, a little bit of enforcement. But everybody's got a part to play in that. Mark, we spoke a lot about sort of like from the victim's perspective and how you actually link in in Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. But road users, vehicles, they're, they're not just regional to us or like national to us, they're international. So thinking about countries far-fetched, as far away as we can think, would you have any sort of like tips and hints from how you work as Road Victims Trust to how they could progress working within their own country, making a difference to the, to the service users? You can. Now, the excellent thing with the Road Victims Trust system is the relationships it builds with the police officers, so the tactical and strategic police officers who go to every single road death and life-changing injury. If people can form a good relationship with the people going to those, work out service level agreements, information sharing agreements, it allows charities such as ourselves and experts around bereavement to do early intervention. Not for people to wait to have to go and find out help themselves. We can be on the front foot and we can be proactive. So the relationships are absolutely key. How you work with commissioners and funders to tell them that story and get that story over to people and show the difference that that early intervention makes is absolutely critical. We've got a brilliant relationship in beds, cams and hearts with the police and crime commissioners who allow us to do that. And as a result of that, 28 years experience working as a partnership as a genuine partnership. Every single person's got a role to play. So if I had to give one top tip, it'd be work with the people who are going to the collisions, form a working relationship and offer support. And I think that's so important because you provide a service that is so fit for purpose, but it's a service that nobody ever wants to voluntarily use um, because of the nature of what you're providing. So that's we have that as your top tip. Is there anything then that you would follow that up with? I think kind of specialist support for the people involved, because these people have gone through a trauma unlike any other trauma. Now, that's not to underplay any other type of death that may occur, but road death by its very nature is always violent and it's always unexpected. Nobody expects to lose anyone any day. People haven't had a chance to say goodbye, yet in the blink of an eye, lives are taken 
and hundreds of other lives that changed on that day. What we know at the Road Victims Trust is you can get early intervention, specialist services that deal with people's emotions and offer practical support. That won't bring their lives back. Those lives are never coming back, but it will start to give people the tools to learn to cope and recover. And we're seeing that time and time again at the Road Victims Trust. Yeah, and their their grief is complicated because it's so unexpected, isn't it? Like you're saying, you know, they leave the home that morning expecting to go to work, expecting to go out, but expecting to come home. And I think the suddenness with the uniqueness of the death in those circumstances really complicates their grief. So, and then just lastly, as a third thing, then thinking about behaviour change, what would your thoughts be with that, Mark? Well, one of the key things to recognise with this is these simply are not accidents. There's 95% of these are human error. So people have got to start to think differently. But it's too easy just to say to human beings, you've got to think differently. The people who design roads have got to think differently. If people are getting killed on the same road all the time, then there's an issue with the road just as much as there is with the driver. So we've got to think in a different way around that, around our safer systems. Uh, And, you know, the culture that everybody has a mobile phone and needs to check it every two minutes is something else. But again, technology would exist that would stop people being able to do that. But that's a bigger question, of course, for governments and dis- policy makers and car manufacturers. Mark Turner was talking to Cheryl Pinner. Finally, this week, we want to introduce you to three more members of the Project Edward team, as well as catching up with our favourite podcast guru. So stand by to say hello to them all, starting with our comms consultant, Becky Hadley. Now, since Project Edward 2021 went so well from a comms point of view, I challenged Becky to reveal how she would manage to do better still in 2022. Ah, now that's going to be quite a challenge. Um, Certainly one of the things that is is an amazing gift with Project Edward is there's so many activities going on around the country. So we do need to know because, you know, there's if you've got an event going on, it's really great if you could just get in touch and let us know what's happening because you might have alerted your local media, but it'd be great if we could then also contact, you know, the big regional TV stations and it could be that we've got enough coverage for a national media story. And, you know, think how good that would be to give everybody that lovely feedback that, you know, we're really getting cut through um, in the national mainstream media. That would be that would be my kind of nirvana. Tell us what your thoughts are on on road safety as a news item, because it we struggle. A lot of organisations struggle. Road safety just doesn't kind of get there, does it? And it doesn't occupy the headlines as, as much as we wish it would. No, it is a difficult one. I mean, you know, it's, it's not helped by the fact that, you know, the old adage, but, you know, everybody thinks that they're a better than average driver. So why would I want to change my driving habits? And so it's really interesting that you've picked that theme this year of changing minds, changing behaviour, because, you know, I think we do, we all need to take a step back and think, well, hang on, you know, what have I done today that's been safer and better? And, you know, to me, one of the first things you do is just stick to the speed limits because, you know, then you seem to, you know, you can you have far fewer encounters but so i think one of the crucial things is this this national focus on safer speeds um and that i think got us quite a lot of attention last year and and i think the very fact that all the police forces in the country are carrying that out i think that's big news 
I would like, I think, to, you know, to work with um, one or two police forces so that we could perhaps try and get um, TV cameras in place and, and really focusing on that again for a national package. That would be really good. Yeah. Becky Hadley, you're very welcome and thank you for what you do for the Project Edward um, initiative. Let's turn to Stuart Lovett. Hello, Stuart. Tell us a couple of interesting things about who you are and what you do and how you come to be on the Northern Road Trip. Okay, so Stuart Lovett, formerly of National Highways, which is how I come to know many of you, uh, and to be involved yet again in Project Edward this year. I've supported Project Edward in my capacity as the Road Safety Lead uh, in uh, National Highways, or Highways England, coordinating the Northern Road Trip this year. Um, so there's plenty of activities going on, whether that's in Liverpool on the Monday, Wednesday will be at Blackpool on the seafront there, Thursday will be in Leeds and Friday will be in Durham. Uh, so we're just waiting. We were hoping to be in Manchester on the Tuesday, but uh, there seems to be some, some issues with regard to that. So we're um, currently looking to find uh, a venue for Tuesday, which uh, I've got a few things in mind, which I'll need to speak to a few people tomorrow. But as Becky's just been saying, I think there's some great opportunities, certainly on the Wednesday, the safer speeds. I know the Deputy Police and Crown Commissioner and some other uh, dignitaries from, from Lancashire and across across the, uh, the partnership and the, the police and fire will be uh, on the seafront there. So we're hoping to get local media, local radio and TV. But of course, now that um, BBC's moved up to uh, Salford Keys, is hopefully there's a possibility of getting them to come down to, to the seafront at Blackpool for a day out and do some, some filming and interviewing, which is what we'll be doing anyway. It's fantastic that you're going to be on Blackpool Seafront. I mean, how have you managed that? What strings have you pulled? Um, it was just what was what the opportunity. There was talks about doing it at uh, the Fire Brigade uh, Training Headquarters um, in uh, Lancashire here, but the opportunity came up, and Blackpool Council gave the permission to use the airport right underneath Blackpool Tower. So, what a superb venue! Uh, local schools will be turning up, uh, and other other partners right across the partnership. So uh, it's looking looking like a very well organized and um, can be very, very useful in raising awareness. And one of the things that we're doing in, in all of the, the Northern Road Trip in, in speaking to the partners that come together, it's very much around partnership working, uh, looking at opportunities and showcasing. And, and I think depending on, on how it plans out, there's a very good opportunity here um, everyone that um, we might be able to link in to the national framework. If if the Department for Transport and the Minister agree to launch it, as we believe in September, then what an opportunity to link Project Edward into the aims of the new national strategy as we're talking to the partners. So we know that partnership working, collaboration and engagement are going to be uh, central themes to the, to the new national framework. So some good opportunities there. And if we can link that into the media and showcase what everybody's coming together to achieve, which is every day without a road death, uh, what an opportunity. Stuart Lovett, thank you very much. Let's turn to Ian Temperton. Ian, you're running the Midlands road trips. What does that mean physically for you? And uh, what qualifies you to be on that trip? Well, I'm just disappointed. I'm not going to match Blackpool Tower, I think, is really the first uh, disappointment of the entire project. Uh, what qualifies me? Essentially, I'm from the local authority world. I had 30 years um, serving as a road safety officer and also looked after the um, casualty reduction partnership in my part of the world, latterly in that time. Uh, I'm now freelance. I've moved away from the local authority world. But in my time as a freelance, I'm incredibly interested in how road safety partnerships work. 
Uh, I do a lot of work in supporting with with other organisations in supporting road safety partnerships in terms of strategy, in terms of the uh, the policies they're delivering on, and in, in fact the way they're structured, how they communicate with each other within a, a geographical area. So. On my little trip around the country, one of the things I'm going to be particularly focusing on is the image that the Road Safety Partnership puts out and how well it communicates within its own world and how effective it's being. And we know around the country, there are some really effective partnerships out there. They're doing wonderful work. They're focused. They have the right targets. They have the right intentions. There are some other partnerships that perhaps need a little guidance, um, some best practice examples to work with. And to me, that's the whole beauty of Project Edward. It is shining that spotlight on the best practice that we can identify on these road trips and giving other partnerships, other police forces and organizations the opportunity to, to have a look at that, pick out the best parts, put people in touch with each other and spread that best practice as wide as we can. Ian Temperton, thank you very much. So that's Ian Temperton, Becky Hadley, and Stuart Lovett uh, that we've that we've met today. Um, let's bring Terry Cook into it, though. Terry has been running the podcast for us and ensuring that that's getting out as far and wide as possible. Terry, you've had a couple of months now, kind of living and breathing Project Edward. Any thoughts from you? Any kind of um, advice for us as to what we could be doing better? The initial thought for me is 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 the people that I've I've met sort of within the Project Edward umbrella, if you like, in that the the caliber of people is obviously there for all to see, but the, the passion behind the project itself has has been a real eye opener for me. Um, as as a driving instructor, it's something that I battle every day with people's parents who learned to drive 30 years ago and did it in 10 hours. So now that my son should pass in 10 hours and and all this stuff, but and it can be quite dispiriting at times. But seeing you guys actually firsthand talk about this stuff and then really put it out there has been a real eye-opener and a genuine pleasure. In terms of what you could do different, I think it really is a case of just keep doing what you're doing. I think it's phenomenal. And I know that you meet a lot of resistance in some places. You know, the, the one I hear is every day without a road death. Well, that's never going to be achievable. So I know there's that resistance out there, but it's like I think it really is a case of keep doing what you're doing and keep going because I think it's it really is tremendous. Thanks to Terry Cook and also to Ian Temperton, Stuart Lovett and Becky Hadley. And that's everything from us this week. Do tell your friends, do subscribe and do all of those helpful things that mean more and more people will tune in to Are We There Yet? We're back next week with a full programme devoted to post-crash response. Our guests will include Declan Cassidy from the World Rescue Organisation, Marcel Reisman from Bosch and Joe Dodman from HCC Solicitors. So do join us on Are We There Yet? The Project Edward podcast. But for now from me, James Luckhurst, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.